0: Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Great. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with each and every one of you. Uh, I've got three announcements, real quick, and then we'll get into the message. Number one, uh, we're going to have our second fall festival. If you remember last year, we had our first fall festival. Uh, Here on the property, that was on Halloween night. We had no idea how it was going to turn out, and it was great. Uh, We had thousands upon thousands of people here. We gave away tons of candy. We had food trucks over in the gravel lot. We played games with people, like carnival-style games. So it was great, very successful way to uh, love our community well, And so we're going to do it for the second time. So here's what we need from everyone. And this is a group effort. It can't just be a few of us. It needs to be all of us. Uh, They are telling me that we need 1,000 pounds of candy, which is a lot of candy. You notice right out there on the cross, there's a couple of bins there. What we're asking you to do is when you go to Smith's or Costco or Walmart or wherever you go shopping, if you grab one bag of candy for you and one bag of candy for us, that would be very much appreciated. Also, uh, we're going to do it trunk or treat style. And so along this parking lot through here, we'll have cars uh, lined up there. You can decorate them or you can theme things out. Uh, If you want to be a part of that, make sure you sign up for that today. uh, Last I heard, I think about half the spots are already filled. So don't be like waiting around like, I don't know what my theme is yet. Like, no, just do it right now and figure that out later. It will be great. And then also we need to help set up and tear down and we need to help with... um, uh, running the, the carnival-style game. So make sure uh, this is a group effort. We do this together. If you want to sign up right now, there's a QR code on the back seat in front of you. Just scan that. Or you can, you can do it old-school way and go out at center point and let them know you want to be a part of this. So make sure you don't miss that opportunity. Sound good? A group effort is what I'm trying to <laughs> A group, I heard 12 of you. It's like, nope, not going to cut it. We need a group effort in that. All right. Uh, second thing is this. GPS, or uh, six, uh, formerly known as 608, that's our Grace Point students, they're going to be having a garage sale on ten eight. Uh, from 6 to 2 p.m. And so what does that mean? That means it's time for you to clean your garages out, your closets out, and bring us some goodies down here so we can sell them. And all the proceeds go for them to go into camp for this summer. Uh, I am a former student pastor way, 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 way back a long time ago. And I've done these things before. And here's my only caveat to this. Don't bring things that you're going to throw away down here for us to throw away like a half-eaten bologna sandwich or something like that. We can't sell that. Come on, you know better. And so uh, bring some good stuff down here. Like, we don't use this anymore. Like, we really don't need this. We can downsize this. And then let the students sell that. That way they can make money to go to camp. Uh, So if you would like to do that, bring it the Friday before. Or if you have any questions about that, you can email Mo, that is M-O, at gracepointvegas.com. You can find him on our website as well. That's our student one. And then uh, lastly, today at 4.30, right out in the lobby, we're having what's called Starting Point. So if you're new to Grace Point Church, you're new to Las Vegas, or you maybe you've been here for a little while and you really have not connected with anyone, uh, this is a great way to connect with people. There'll be uh, pastors, staff, and people at Grace Point down here. Uh, we'll have tasty hot and cold coffees and treats as well. You just come in. There's no agenda, no need to sign up. You just come and ask questions or just get to know people. It's a great way to kind of break the ice and get to know people at the church. So make sure you do that today, 430. Sound good? All right, let's get started. Uh, today, we we'll are continuing our study on the book of Esther. And if you've missed any of this, because like, if you're just jumping in today, it's going to feel like you uh, walked in about an hour into a movie, so it's going to be like, wait, what's going on? I highly recommend you can go back to our website or go to YouTube and watch the videos or listen to the videos, or just read the first uh, three chapters of Esther. That will get you caught up. Uh, but I'll give you a little bit about what's going on. There's a main theme within the book of Esther. The book of Esther is different than all the other books of the Bible. Equally inspired by God, but it works a little different. In most other books of the Bible, you hear mention of God or you have a prophet or you have something about the temple or Jerusalem or all those types of things. In the book of Esther, it feels like God is absent from it. Uh, it feels like, as Martin Luther called it, the godless book of the Bible. But what we've said is uh, the book of Esther is much like our lives at times as well. It's all about God's providence. God is working behind the scenes. Remember we said each and every week that it's like God has two hands. He has his uh, visible hand. That would be like his miracles and acts that you could see. But he also has his invisible hand, uh, which is him working behind the scenes for his uh, glory and for our good. And so that's what we're going to see from the book of Esther over and over and over. Uh, If you were with us last week, we kind of left it on a cliff of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Because you remember there was a guy by the name of King Ahasuerus. Was he a good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Well, he made this guy Haman a number two. And we find out from last week, he really was a number two. And anyway, uh, everyone, uh, everyone was commanded by the king to bow down to Haman because he was like the number two in charge. And there was one guy who did not bow down to Haman. And his name was? Mordecai. Mordecai was the older cousin of Esther and kind of the father figure in her life because her parents had died, so he was taking care of her. And this guy was like anti-bow. He's like, I'm not bowing to you. Right, wrong, indifferent, doesn't matter. He just decided he was not going to bow. Mordecai saw that. It made him furious. He could have gone over and just put his hands around his neck, choked him out, or like you know, made him bow down, or executed him. He, could, he had that kind of power, but he decided not to. He kind of investigated Mordecai, found out he was Jewish, and Mordecai was like, I know how to take care of this. I'll just rid the whole providence, the whole 127 providences, the whole kingdom, the Persian empire of all Jewish people. And so he goes to the king, he butters, butters the kings up and says, hey, king, I'll give you a large sum of money, like tons of silver, and if you, if you would sign some kind of law, in effect, where we kill all the Jewish people, the king, if you remember, gave him the signet ring, which was basically the power of attorney, and says, now you can sign a law in place that all Jewish people must die. And they rolled the dice and figured out when that would happen. It's 11 months from the time they did that. And so all 15 million people, historians say, 15 million Jewish people in the empire are going to die. And it's not just like um, the Persian empire sending out the army to kill them all. No, they're saying to everyone, because they sent out a letter to everyone in the province, hey, on this date, all Jewish people must die. And if you kill them, you can take their possessions. How messed up is that? super messed up but it like it, i guess it would encourage people like oh man i really like their house i really like their camel i really like their playstation i'm going to take it i'll kill them on this day and so it was a very very messed up thing and so we ended right there from last week are you caught up they didn't have PlayStation beckton all right what's going to happen <laughs> We're going to be in Esther chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, go to Esther chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always lovingly say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. We love our Bibles. And so if you don't own a Bible, we want you to have one. We have them in English and Spanish right up here at the front tables. We have them at Center Point. We have fancy Bibles out there on the right when you walk out. Uh, those are like display. You can order one of those up. And if you've got a smartphone, you can download version and click Grace Point Vegas and all the fun stuff from today will pop up. Esther chapter 4. Are you there? Did I say Ephesians 4? No, I thought I said it earlier. Esther 4. Okay, my bad. It's been a long weekend. Here we go. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, everything i previously said, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Okay, so you have to imagine Mordecai hears word that the king has signed this edict, this law, that all the Jewish people must die based upon what Mordecai didn't do, bowing down to Haman. And Mordecai is just, he's grieving, he's lamenting, He said, And so he takes all of his clothes off, he goes into the closet, he pulls out this this garment, this really heavy, probably made out of a goat's uh, hair garment, and puts it on. Now, this goatskin, this, this sackcloth, it would be what they would carry grain in or whatever. If you're from the country, it would be burlap. Uh, you know what burlap is? If you know what burlap is, or if you're just kind of reading into the story, is it comfortable or uncomfortable? <laughs> Extremely itchy and all that. Well, Well, why is that? Well, he wanted no relief and no comfort because there was no comfort in all the Jewish people going to die. And so that sackcloth was making him feel the discomfort that he should be feeling rightfully so. And then he would go over into the fireplace, he would grab a fistful of ashes, and he'd rub ashes over his head and over his face and over his body. Now, why would he do that as well? Because ashes is a symbol for death. And he was walking around basically uncomfortable with this scene of death on him. Why? Because death was coming to them. And so he is grieving, he is lamenting, and he is mourning all that's going on. You got that part so far? Very important part. Verse 2. He, being Mordecai, went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Now, remember what we said beginning of this. Whenever you read the king's gate, that's the very important place. Like that is the the central. That is like Washington, D.C. right there. That's like the most important place within the town. So they went up to the, the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And so what he's doing is he went and took his grieving to a very public place. He's making his lamenting and his mourning public for everyone to see. Like this is basically, for lack of better terms, this is the Instagram of the day. This is the Twitter of the day. And So he's trending out there at the king's gate of like, there's this guy out there with sackcloth on and ashes, something must be going wrong. And so he's making it very, very public. He is letting people know that he feels powerless, that death is going to ensue them all. Now, the text says he goes up to the king's gate, but he can't go into the king, to to the king's gate. He can't pass through the gates. Why is that? Because once you go past the king's gate, you get towards the king, and the king wants no negativity at all. He wants all good vibes because he's a party animal and all that, and so he wants nothing negative brought into uh, his presence. Uh, One person, George uh, Morrison, said it like this. They must have a good time, the king, at all costs, They must live their easy and comfortable lives as if there were no voices calling them. Only good and happy people can get to the king. Pause. If not careful, we kind of make Christianity like that as well. We want Christianity to be all about epic and awesome and amazing and rainbow and cupcakes and everything's just peachy keen and fine because if it's not, most Christians have no they have no way to receive that or they have no bearing to, to let that into their lives. Why? Because for some reason in Christianity, we have been led to believe that your Christian experience must always be on the positive side of the emotional spectrum. It must be happy. It must be good. It must be joy-filled. It must be smiles at all times. But can we be really honest? It's not, is it? It's not. And if not careful, we extrapolate that a little bit more and we'll think God is the same way. And we're like, you know what? I'm pretty sad right now. And I'm sure God does not want me to be a sad sack in front of him. So I better just go stay away from God for a while. I'm like, God must not want me. Listen, there's a huge difference between King Ahasuerus and our King, God. King of wanted no evil, or wanted no like sadness or sorrowfulness or lamenting or grieving in front of him. Our king welcomes it. He says, "Bring me your burdens, bring me your anxieties." Our priest king, he says, "Bring me every bit of sorrow and grieving and lamenting that you have. I want to make sure we understand that. Like with Christianity, we we can go to both sides of the emotional spectrum." The positive what we see happy and joy and glad and all that. And what I don't want to refer to as the negative, but the emotions that are sad and sorrowful, grieving and mourning and l- lamenting. You ever notice the Bible, they do emotions and they do sadness really well. You ever just read the Bible like, man, they, they understand how to be sad. They understand how to lament. You see a lot of sackcloth and ashes and tears and all that kind of stuff. You ever read the book of Psalms? There's a lot of lamenting and there's a lot of crying. But as, as Americans, maybe it's an American thing. Maybe it's a modern thing. We don't do that very well, do we? And maybe because we've heard things like this all of our life. Uh, you better dry it up or I'll? Dry it up for you or I'll give you something to cry about. I've heard that one before. And so we don't do well at it. And so here's what we do. We put on our Christian facade when we're sad, when things are not good. And we come to church and, and we, here's what we do. This is exactly what you and I do how are you doing? Fine. How are you? Fine. Is that what we do? And we're like, okay, great, deuces. And then later on, we find out that your life is not that good. We find out that your dog has cancer, or maybe you just realized your kids are listening to Nickelback, or like something like horrendous is happening. And you're like, you're not fine? Like you, why are you saying that you're fine? You're absolutely in a horrible place right now. But we just, we don't feel like anyone can bear the weight of that. We don't feel like God can bear the weight of. Now, some of you may say, well, you know what? Uh, I, just, I just don't cry. I just don't think crying is right. And, and as a pastor, many people come to me and they shed tears. And the first thing people say when they start crying in front of me sometimes is this. I'm sorry for crying. I'm sorry for crying. And my rebuttal to you is this. God cries. He does. You, you can see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem at times. He He cries. Or we'll say this, you know, I don't want to burden anyone with my problems. I don't want to burden God with my problems. And yet our Bibles command us to do that. And so we are to bear one another's burdens appropriately there. Or I don't want want to be emotional. I've heard this one many times. Men, let me just call you out on this one. I don't want to be emotional. God is emotional. Where do you think those emotions came from? It's a part of his communicable attributes. He gives us emotions. See, if, if we do not grieve well, if we miss it in times to lament and grieve, listen, we will eventually explode. You will spontaneously combust. It's science. It's gonna happen. Somehow, way, if you are not grieving and mourning the losses and the limitations in your life, you won't make it. It will come out in other areas, and it will come out bad. It'll come out in anger. It'll come out in addictions. It'll come out in so many ways because you need to grieve the loss of that loved one. You need to grieve the limitations you're now experiencing as an older, more matured person. You need to grieve those sad things in your life. You just can't wear a smile and move on. That's not what we're seeing Mordecai do right here. Mordecai's like, I'm going to bring it visually out where everyone can see I'm grieving, I'm lamenting, I'm mourning what is going on there. This, this this atrocity that's happening. So the question I have for you is this. What is it? What burden are you carrying that you need to let someone know about? What burden are you carrying? Like you need to let a brother or sister in Christ know about it. What burden are you carrying that you're not taking to God? That you're just refi- like I don't want to. I don't want to. You know. I don't let God know that or whatever. He already knows to take it to Him. He knows. He wants it all. So Mordecai is lamenting. That's a lesson for us to learn when things or tragic, or horrific, or bad. Got it? Okay, verse three. And in every province, so he's lamenting this horrible law, all the Jews are going to die. He says, and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So uh, up until this point in the story, if you remember the story, any it's been nothing but party time. It's been these great feasts. It's been what they called the royal wine. It's been beautiful clothes. Actually, the the ladies were uh, getting cosmetics that took like a year, all the oils and spices and all that. But now you see that the feasting and all that is replaced with fast. There's no food. There's no water. Fine clothes are replaced with scratchy burlap cloth. All the oils and spices are replaced by ashes. All the cheers have now been replaced with tears. So the story really turning. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther's people, they know Mordecai. Remember earlier in the story, Mordecai would come by and check on her every once in a while. He'd come to like the gate or the fence and say, hey, you're doing okay? Is she doing okay? And they send word back and forth. Uh, So he's cared for before, so they know who Mordecai is. And at this point, the queen is so detached from everyday life, she has no idea what's going on. She is removed from everyday life. Remember we said that, if you were called into the king's concubine, if you were in his harem, you were removed from everyday life, from your family. You were almost imprisoned. You were a sex slave. And so we can see it right here that she has no idea what's going on. All she knows is her older cousin, her kind of father figure, is out there and he's wearing ashes and sackcloth and kind of, in her mind, probably making a fool of himself. So what does she do? She sends him down to the JCPenney and sends him a really nice suit. And she said, hey, you need to put this on. You need to cheer it up. You're by the king's gate, guy. Don't you know this is not going to work well for you? You need to put a nice suit on and do this. And what does Mordecai do? It's like, nah, I'm not doing that. It goes on, verse five. Then Esther called to Hathik, uh one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So she wanted some information. She needed some in- intel. So she, uh, she sends out Hathik, uh to go find out. Verse six, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Remember, Esther has no idea that all Jewish people, probably 15 million of them, are going to die in 11 months. Side note, side note, what is Esther Keep that in mind. So she can't go see him face to face. Remember, she's kind of locked up, uh, so she sends her eunuch. So verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And so Mordecai, he tells of this demonic plan and remember, uh, yesterday, or uh, yesterday, last week, I said it's, it's not just an evil plan that Haman had. We believe it to be a demonic plan. Uh, Satan wants nothing more than to destroy God's plan and God's people. We can see that all the way back into the Garden of Eden. I mean, you can see that at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see that in Egypt. You remember that time when Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be What? tempted. And so the tempter was out there because he wanted nothing more than to stop Jesus because he could stop God's plan and stop God's people right there. And so Satan wants to do that in our lives as well. And when we look at this story, we can all summarize. This is not the the run-of-the-mill kind of evil heart situation. This feels like it has power behind it. This is demonic. The the destruction of 15 million Jewish people. This is demonic. This really is. Verse 8. So he's telling the eunuch Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so Mordecai's like, hey, here it is in writing to make sure you understand exactly what's going on. He gives that to the eunuch to take back. Notice that Mordecai is commanding Esther to go beg on the people's behalf. There's this idea that Mordecai believes that the king can do something about it. Maybe, maybe not. But there's this opportunity to do something for God's people and God's purpose, and it's about to fall in the lap of Esther. Do you feel the great tension happening right now? Can you kind of see the invisible hand of God working? And you're going to start seeing a a little bit of it displayed. Can you see it? It's getting ready to happen. What will she do? Well, we're going to find out in just a minute. But we know this. Whenever it comes to working on behalf of God's people as uh, one of God's people and working on behalf of God's purpose, I want you to listen to what I'm getting ready to tell you. It will always cost you something. Always, it's not a free endeavor. It always it may cost you reputation. It may cost you some skin in the game. It may cost you your resources. It may cost of your time. It may cost you so much. It may cost you your life. And that's what we're going to find out about Esther right here. It may cost her her life. So what do we do about that? Perhaps God is giving you opportunity to stand up for God's people as one of God's people or to live out part of God's plan as being one of his people. My question for you is what are you going to do with that opportunity when it lands at your lap? Perhaps God has already been uh, nudging you or showing you something he wants you to do. He is calling you or giving you an opportunity for something. Even before we get to Esther, let's start with us first. What is God calling you to do in this season? For some of you, it may be something like just simple like, hey, you know what? God's calling you to engage him more and to read his word and to investigate it more and fall more in love with it. Maybe it's to pray. Maybe there's some sin in your life that God has given you opportunity to walk away from. And like, don't miss that opportunity because sometimes we can get too entangled in that sin. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And the book of James says it leads to death. But right now, he's giving you an opportunity to confess it and to repent of it. Perhaps he's calling you to engage the church body more, like like the family here and whatever that would look like, whether it be to serve, to give, to love, to care, to teach, or something like that. Perhaps it's something within your marriage or within your family or within your work or within your school or wherever it is but God is giving you an opportunity. What are you going to do with the opportunity? Now, if you're anything like me, you can come up with 100 excuses not to obey God and to follow God. Am I right? Okay, I'll be the only sinner in the room right now. You guys are way better than me. What? Take this mic off. You guys do this. Like, I can't, like, if God calls me to do something, like, oh, God, that's too. that's hard. God, come on, not me. And I'm always like, not me, somebody else. But if not me, then who? I'm like, oh God, I'll do that. I'll do that later on. Whatever that is, you're like, oh, let's, let's take care of this later on, God. If not now, when? So I think that's the question that we that we need to ask, because here's here's sometimes what God will use in our life to motivate our obedience to His opportunities, and it's crisis, because they're going through what I believe we would call a crisis. And many of you here, I know your stories. I know your stories. And like you want to avoid crisis with all you can and you don't want any hardships in your life. But I know many of your stories and you've gone through the ringer, haven't you? And you would probably sit back and say, I would have never chosen that for my life. However, I'm glad I went through that. Any of you guys ever been in that situation before? Give me, give me a little high sound like, yep. Because after that, you went through that, you would say, I grew more than I've ever grown in my life. I feel closer to the Lord than I've ever felt in my life. I feel closer to my spouse, my family, my kids, my church, than I ever had before in my life. And you would never pick that, and yet you went through it. God will use crisis. Oftentimes, our opportunities for growth are during the hardest, most chaotic, desperate of seasons. That's exactly what they're going through right here. So I I want us to kind of pay attention to what they do. So Mordecai makes the request. This is really bad. You need to go to the king and beg. Look what verse 9 says. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai. So you see that the eunuch is going back and forth, back and forth. You see that, right? Make sure you play that in your head says verse 11, All the king's servants and the king's people, the king's providences, know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner courts without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, this being Esther, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Clue. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. So let me kind of set the scene for you. The king's there in the throne room, probably a big chamber, big room, big ballroom type thing. If you were to go to the king's chamber, you've made it to that far, the king would see you from far off. If the king were to take his scepter, and a scepter's kind of like, you've probably seen movies, the scepter's like this golden staff thing, a ball in the end or a crown or something like that. If the king were to tip it towards your way then he is inviting you in. You come and touch the scepter in a, in, in, a, in a sign of saying, you're an authority, you're above me, and I am beneath you. I am kind of groveling. You are to touch the scepter, and you are welcomed in. However, if the king does not tip the scepter to you, you know what happens? They say in these time periods that there would be axemen behind them, you know, guys with the hoods on, the big axes, like you've seen in the movies before. And they, if he didn't tip the scepter, they'd walk over there, Yik! and just chop, and your head would fall off, and everybody would laugh and make fun of you. So Esther knows this, and she is now faced with this fact of, if I go to the king uninvited, I may lose my head. Now, I know you're thinking, but whoa, 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 that's his wife. She's the queen. Did you see in verse 11 what she said? She says, I've not been with the king for how long? Uh Uh-oh, there's trouble in paradise. Like, that's his wife. That's his lady friend. But here's the thing about the king. He has a whole harem, whole concubine. He has has more lady friends than he knows what to do with. And so here's some speculation the text doesn't give us, but perhaps she has fallen out of favor with the the king or he has got a new pet or he is just, because here's the thing about this king we know. He's not been sleeping alone for those 30 days, if you know what I mean. Hint, wink. Other people have been occupying the bed while she is kind of locked up in the lap of luxury, but locked up nonetheless. And mind you, if you remember this king from the story, uh, this dude likes to get hammered, drunk, and make a bunch of dumb decisions. And so she knows that all this about her husband—that he's the king, he can chop your head off if he doesn't want you in there. He likes to drink way too much and get drunk, and he's very fickle, and he gets terrible counsel. And if I go in there, I'll probably lose my head. Why? Because he's not called me there for the for the past thirty days. So this. This is a dangerous proposal for Esther. This is no walk in the park. We got it? Very dangerous. So word gets back to Mordecai, and here's what he says. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. What is Esther? Okay, okay, I want you to think, think about this. Who knows in this story that Esther is Jewish? Who Who, who knows? Mordecai. Anybody else? The eunuch. He's the one going back and forth with the information. Now, speculation. Is Mordecai threatening Esther? I don't, I don't think so, but maybe. I don't, I don't know. Like, like, we know Mordecai, Mordecai loves her and cares for her and all that kind of stuff, but he's basically saying, hey, you're in the same soup we are. And so, like, because you're Jewish, and I don't think he's, like, dropping this thinly veiled threat thread of, like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to tell him you're Jewish as well. That way it's going to be off with your head. We're all going to die in this situation. It's just interesting right here. Uh, but what he's saying is if you're not on the right side of this situation, you're going to die anyway. If you don't do something, we're all going to die. But then verse 14, everything changes. For if you keep silent at this, this is Mordecai telling the eunuch to tell Esther, if you keep silent at this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. If you know anything about the book of Esther, this is your phrase. This is the phrase of all phrase. Now, notice Mordecai's attitude. At one minute, he's saying, hey, you need to go beg the king. On the other minute, he's like, hey, whatever, don't do it. We're gonna get delivered from this anyway, but you will perish. All right, so he's telling her straight up, he's got this confidence, some swagger. Now, he's saying, if you don't help, Helpful come from somewhere else. Question for us as we read this. What is he talking about? Who's going to deliver the Jews? If it's not going to be the king, then who's it going to be? Answer, the text doesn't say. But we can speculate. We can have a little bit of holy curiosity and imagination. Imagine, perhaps Mordecai it was reverting back to his Jewish roots and faith. Perhaps he remembers hearing stories of the great Yahweh, the, the God of the Old Testament, who would come and fight the battles of his people. Perhaps he remembers how the stories of, of how God promised Father Abraham that we'd make him a great nation and their world would be blessed by him. And so, of course, we can't wipe out all of God's people because then that promise wouldn't come true and God keeps all of his promises. So perhaps he's thinking about that. Perhaps he's remembering the story of the great deliverance from from uh, you know the Egyptian nightmare they went through for, for the book of Exodus. Perhaps he's remembering all that. Perhaps he is now, at this scene in the story, trusting God, trusting God's power, trusting God's goodness, trusting God's deliverance, trusting God's providence, trusting that God will provide for them, and trusting that God will get them out of this. I think that's what's going on here. I think faith has now been activated in Mordecai. Before it feels like, hey, we can try to work this system and make it work for us. And now they're in a crisis mode to where like, there's nothing else we can do here. There's nothing we can do apart from God. We can't get out of this. Have you been in a situation like that in your life before? Like you've done everything you can do. And by the way, it feels like the more we try to fix something, the more we just mess it up. Am I right? It's true. And we get to a situation where like, we have to cry uncle and be like, God, you got to do something. That's exactly where Mordecai is right there. Exactly. So now he starts evoking this providence of God. Look back at verse 14. He says in that last part, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, uh, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Such a time as this. It's like he's asking Esther, Esther, don't you know who put you here? I know we, we zigged and zagged along the way and you're there for a reason, but Esther, can't, can't you pause and look back on your life and see like all that added up. It wasn't just like us and our human ingenuity making this happening. There, there had to be someone greater than us that put you in this position right now on behalf of God's people. Can't you see that, Esther? And I can only imagine, this is again, using our imagination because the text doesn't say a whole lot, but using our imagination that Esther's gotta be sitting there thinking, but why me? Like, like what, what can I do? Because that's the same thing we ask, Right? We just see ourselves as an individual, like, you know, there's such big problems in the world today. What can I do? Edward Everett Hale said this, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. God can use an individual. That's what we see from this story. God can use an individual's obedience and taking the, the moment and the opportunity to do something. God can use Esther, God can use you. You remember we said that about Esther a few weeks back, that she's complicated, complex, and broken? Who does that sound like? Yep. And so if God can use her, compromised, he can use, he can use us. He can use us as well. And that's the thing about God's providence. He wants to use you. What happens if Esther says no? That's what Mordecai is contemplating right there. He says, Esther, if you say no, you're not going to stop God's plan. Your no will not thwart the plan of God, just like us as well. When God calls us to do something, please don't think that highly of ourselves of like, well, if I say no, God's not going to get his plan done. Yeah, he will. Oh, yeah, he will. He'll, just, he'll do it through someone else and you'll miss the opportunity. You'll miss the opportunity to be used by God to commune with God. In that Jesus talks about rewards all the time, heaven doesn't get any worse; it only gets better. And so there's reward system. You'll miss an opportunity to be used by God. And so if Esther says no to this, then she'll miss the opportunity. Yet God's plan will still happen. That providence and and what we sometimes like to call free will, we really struggle with that sometimes. Like, are we just a bunch of puppets? And the answer is no. God can change the king's heart like water in his hand. Remember the, the proverb says that? And so he can motivate and move us, but at the end of the day, we still are gonna make choices, but God's plan will always come to fruition. A.W. Tozer, great theologian of old, he gave a great uh, analogy of this. He said this. He says, Picture or envision a ship where there's a captain determined to get that boat to the port, to take it on a long journey across a very rough sea, but he's determined to get it into its destination port. Ultimately, that captain is in charge. He's in control. He's the sovereign. Now, on that ship, let's say there are many, many passengers. Those passengers make lots of decisions, and they're free to make the decisions. They interact, and they can do all kinds of things. But ultimately, the captain will get that ship to its intended port. It means that all the decisions that are made by those who are are along for the voyage, they're morally responsible. If they're sinning, rebelling, causing mutiny, harming one another, whatever they do, they're responsible for that but the captain's will cannot be overtaken that captain will get the ship to the intended port so we have a responsibility to respond to god with yes but at the end of the day god has a responsibility to fulfill his promises and he will get the ship to the port i mean when we think about esther and mordecai right here they have an opportunity to tap out of this but ultimately and we can look on it from this side of history God got his ship to the port. He saves his people. Spoiler alert, we'll learn more about that along the way. But it comes the same thing to us as well. I want us to know that God, when he promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us, when he promises us that there's salvation for us, when he makes those promises, he will get us home. Even at times when we rebel, even at times when we buck against him, even at times where we rebel or like we just like, hey, I'm not going to do this or I don't take this opportunity, God will get us home. God will get us to Jesus. God will get us to Him forever and eternity. Why? Because He fulfills His promises. Because He is providential. Because He is sovereign and control all over all things. Some of you would say, "I don't know about that tie." I've walked away from God. Maybe you have walked away from God, and maybe right now in your heart you may be here, but your heart is walking away from God. Here's the good news. Are you His? Are you His? then as far away as you walk from God, he is the hound of heaven and he's right on your heels. And all you have to do is turn around. He is there. And that turn around is repentance. He is right there with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? Live that out. And because of that, we can take a little bit of risk in life and we can follow God into the unknown because that's what we're going to find out from Esther and Mordecai. So what is Esther going to do? Look at verse 15. Let me close it out. Esther told them uh, to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night night or day. That's an interesting number. And I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had said. So she said, yes, I'll go to the king. And I'm going to fast. And I'm going to have my ladies here fast. You're going to have all the, the Jewish people fast. Interesting. Remember to go into the king, she went under like a year's worth of purification. She had to be perfect, spotless, and beautiful. Remember that? Now, if you, you ever fasted for three days from food and water, you look awful. Let me just say, like you look, you look very sickly. Uh, and so like she's getting ready to go in there. I mean, three days without water. That's like, that's like the death period. Like you got to watch out for that. Like she's totally dehydrated she's going to go into the king. So she is going to risk everything. And she says that we're going to fast. Now, when they use the word fast here and a little bit before this, this is the first time we get a spiritual word in in the book of uh, Esther, right? It doesn't say fast and pray. Why does does it omit prayer? I don't know. Uh, We usually uh, put prayer and fasting together. It's probably assumed right here. With the king and Haman, they're all feasting, but God's people are going to fast. So here's a question for us. Why do we fast, or why should God's people fast? Well, desperate times calls for desperate measures, and they're all about to lose their life, they're all about to die, and so uh, they, they want to call upon God, and they want to be attuned with God, and so they're going to fast in order to, um, to call upon God. Why should we fast? Well, uh, you see it throughout the Bible when big decisions are to be made or when there's big risk to be happened for God the people of God fast. And so maybe in your life, there's a big risk coming up or a big decision, maybe that has to do with home or that has with your family or work or like ministry or something like that. We are called to fast. Remember when Jesus, Jesus in the, uh, remember the Sermon on the Mount? He assumes that all of us are fasting. But, but we don't, do we? Crickets. Dave Mathis said it like this. Fasting has fallen on hard times, at least it seems among our overstuffed bellies in the American church. If we are awakened to see fasting for the joy it can bring as a means of God's grace to strengthen and sharpen Godward affections, then we might find ourselves holding a powerful new tool for enhancing our enjoyment of Jesus. Let me just throw it out here. I know during the season of Lent we fast. That's what we do as a church. But Lenting is for also, or our fasting is also for the rest of the season. You might fast a meal. You may fast a day. You might fast a certain food or a certain thing or a certain whatever, and the only reason to fast is not to lose weight. It's not. Or to kickstart your metabolism, as the magazines say. It's not. We replace our eating with praying and seeking the Lord. And the reason why is because we want to sharpen our attitudes on our affections to Jesus. Right now, where you sit, if you would say, hey, Todd, I really just don't desire Jesus that much. I'm here, but my desires for Jesus are very low. My affections and my loves for Jesus are very low. You know what we should do? Fast. Fast. Like maybe this week at work, your 30-minute lunch, go sit in the car, don't eat, grab your Bible, read it, and pray it. Just fast. Not to try to win God's favor or try to say, say, look at me, God, I'm really spiritual. No. But to attune our energy and effort and all that towards him, to attune our affections towards him. That's what's going on here is that Esther calls upon everyone to fast. And basically at this point, it's like not only did Mordecai kind of change to where he's relying on God, now it looks like Esther is not, no longer using her wit, her charm, and her beauty. Now she's using her soul. She's like, you know what? I'm going to go to the king, and if I die, I die. You know why? Because now she values God and the, and the ways of God and the purpose of God more than her life. You know how, uh, uh, how much of an unstoppable person that makes us if we value Jesus? He's our greatest treasure. Eternity, his kingdom's our greatest treasure. We're unstoppable. Why? No one can threaten your life anymore. No, like the, what, If you make whatever it is your greatest treasure, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your comfort, people can threaten that. I can take that away. But when my greatest treasure is Jesus, no one can take that away. No one can threaten that. You're unstoppable. And She says, if I die, I die. It's the same thing Paul said. Remember the apostle Paul? He says, to live as Christ is what? To die is game. He's like, I'm an unstoppable person. He was in prison when they did that. I'm sure that just made the guards mad. They're like, hey, Paul, straighten up or we're gonna kill you. He's like, okay. No, we're going to make you live. He's like, okay, either way it's fine with me. He's like, they can't do anything about him. Why? Jesus was his greatest treasure. And she's making the sacrifice for all the people. Now, she's going to go be the mediator. She's going to go to the king on behalf of the people. You know who that reminds me of? Jesus. Think about the parallels in the story. See, We sometimes think we need a mediator to go on our behalf to God. We think we need a pastor or a pope or a saint or somebody like that, but we really don't. Those people are in the same soup we are. They're all a part of sinful humanity just like we are, that we can actually go to our king. But there's a lot of caveats to go with that. King Ahasuerus, he was a very dangerous king, and you could not go to him, especially if you were sad or were not summoned or anything like that, or you could die. There's some similarities with our king as well. We cannot go to our king because he is holy, and you and I, we are not holy, are we? And so something must happen. God fixes that problem. He sends us Jesus. God comes to us, takes on perfection, takes on humanity, and is perfect for us and lives on our behalf. He is God in the flesh, similar to what Esther does. Esther says, I want to save my people, so if I die, I die. God says, I'm going to save my people, and so I will die. And he comes, he dies on our behalf. He takes the punishment for us. And because he's done that, now he, Jesus, is our mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy 2 says this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So we no longer need someone to stand on our behalf because we have Jesus on our behalf and we can go to God now. And look what it says in Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of needs. Do you hear that? You and I can go to God with confidence. We can approach Him. No longer do we have to run away from God. No longer do we have to hide from God. No longer do we have to be like religious or spiritual. No, we can with confidence go to God and we can receive mercy and receive grace. That's the good news of the gospel. And I think way, way, way back, this is what the book of Esther is pointing us to, is that Jesus provides us way to where we can go straight to the King because of what He's done. Now, What is going to happen in the rest of the story? She's getting ready to go to the king. She's getting ready to put her neck on the line. She might die. All 15 million of the Jewish people may die. What will happen next? You have to come back and find out next week. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just for your unbelievable love, grace, and mercy. And We're just grateful that we can approach you now. We can come to you in prayer. We can come to you in your presence and approach you all because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so because of that, we're just immensely thankful. God, I also know we can look at the book of Esther and see that you've, um, just like with Esther, there are situations that you put us in that are opportunities for us to obey you, opportunities for us to live out your plan and your purpose. And God, I pray for us right now that we'd be people that would know that, uh, that you'd give us discernment to sense that, and then you would give us obedience to do it. And so God, please help us to Uh, Be aware of that and do whatever you're calling us to do today. And God, as you do that, uh, we pray that you would just grow us, uh, grow us in our love and our affections, our desire of you, and that you would grow our love and our unity with one another. And Jesus, as you're doing the work in, through, and around your church, would it just bring us joy? Father, I also pray... We're just brothers and sisters going through really tough times right now. That there is mourning, that there is grieving, and that there is lamenting, whether it be from loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a dream, loss of something. God, would you comfort them now? Would you help them know it's okay to come to you with grieving, with mourning, and with sorrow? You can handle that. You can take it. I pray you give them a good brother and sister. Come alongside them as well. We ask all this